everybody welcome back to pastor's bible study so glad to continue going through the gospel of mark with you line by line we're in chapter 12 verse 41 today you can jump right in right here or you can go back to the very beginning to begin at chapter 1 verse 1. okay so to reorient you where we are today remember that we are in the temple in jerusalem that's where jesus is teaching his disciples and crowds it's where he's encountering religious leaders sometimes in a really adversarial way because they're very threatened by him and what he is teaching is very much not what they're expecting to hear and so that's the context of these relationships and then Jesus and his disciples observe something taking place here at the temple and that's where we're going to jump in chapter 12 verse 41 Jesus sat across from the collection box for the temple treasury and observed how the crowd gave their money many rich people were throwing in lots of money one poor widow came forward and put in two small copper coins worth a penny. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I assure you that this poor widow has put in more than everyone who's been putting money in the treasury. All of them are giving out of their spare change, but she from her hopeless poverty has given everything she had, even what she needed to live on. Okay, so... I want to stop right there and say, if you've been in churches for a while, you may have heard this story brought up before. And a lot of times it's brought up really simplistically, all right? It's used to point out that, hey, some people are being incredibly generous, but they're being generous out of the excess they already have. They're not really giving sacrificially. They have plenty around. And so that largesse is just coming from that. It's not really costing them anything to give something. Bill Gates once said, you know, I've given billions and billions and billions of dollars away, but I've still got a private plane, right? He pointed out, yes, I'm being incredibly generous, but I'm also still incredibly wealthy. I'm not really giving sacrificially very much at all. And it's a fair point that he's making. And what he immediately then made was there's a lot of people who are giving very sacrificially, meaning there's a lot of things in their life, a lot of things that are easy or things that are luxurious that they don't enjoy because they're being so generous and so compassionate. So one of the things that Jesus is highlighting is, yes, some people are giving a lot more, but this woman in the incredible small amount that she's giving, just a fraction of a day's wages in her society, that means so much more because that's what she's got to give. It's incredibly sacrificial. And so really frequently, that is how this scripture is addressed. Just, wow, look at that. Are you giving sacrificially, et cetera? And so while that is all accurate, I want to maybe make it feel a little bit more complex for you today. So a couple of things I want to point out. One, in this society, women don't have the same access to work. They don't have the same access to resources. They don't have the same uh, self-determination over who they do and don't marry that we enjoy in our world today. And so their world is a little bit different. And particularly different is the reality of someone who has been widowed. I'm not an expert on exactly how the society functioned in every capacity, but I do know that one of the instructions that was given to the people who guide the religious community in their day and time is take care of the widows. Take care of the widows, the people who don't have someone to take care of them. Does that make sense? Take care of the people around you who are vulnerable and who don't have access to the means of caring for themselves very well. So one of the things when I see this story is if this woman has so very little, one of the things that means is she's not being cared for very well. Does that make sense? One of the groups of people that would be responsible for making sure that widows in their midst are cared for would be the people who are leading the religious organization. And so one of the things that Jesus is doing is pointing out that this woman is sure not being cared for very well. 
She's being allowed to live in this state of extreme poverty. And does that mean that some resources are not being managed correctly? That's one of the things that I see when I read that text. The fact that she lives in that condition is itself a condemnation of the people who've allowed her to get to that place. So I just want to point out that she is so vulnerable because she's been allowed to be so vulnerable by the world around her. So Jesus points that out. One of the other things I want to point out is that in their society too, offerings given to the temple would not exclusively be the domain of people's generosity. There would be a system of taxation as well from the temple. There'd be a religious obligation to give money, whether you had that money or not to give. And so I think he's also lifting up that some people are making gifts because they're being compelled to do so, not because they desire to do so. And so the way that money is being received by the temple is very complicated, and the way that it's being spent, the way that it's being utilized by those who have access to those resources is also not in perfect alignment with God's will and with God's purposes. So in acknowledging what's happening here, he's also implicitly, I believe, critiquing some of the systems that are taking place around it. That kind of complexifies it a little bit, doesn't it? Makes it a little bit more complex than just, wow, look at this incredible act of generosity and devotion. But that being said, one of the things I see Jesus doing in this text is also giving the woman some of her agency back. Does that make sense? So often, people who are in the extreme grips of poverty and difficulty in life can be almost treated as passengers in their own life. They're people who aren't in that situation. A lot of their own agency and decision-making can be taken away from them, even by people who desire to help them or do well by them. And so when Jesus is doing, he's also pointing out that her giving, even though it's in the context of this complicated and complicit system of taxation and support, it's also an act of devotion. He gives her that agency back. He gives her that desire to say, yes, this is incredibly nuanced and complicated and difficult and ultimately not right. And at the same time, this woman still has the agency to put God first and foremost in her life. To live like one of the people that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount, who are like the lilies in the field. And even though they don't know how they're going to be clothed or how they're going to be fed, they trust that God sees them and cares for them. So I think one of the things that Jesus is doing is critiquing the system that allows this kind of poverty to exist while at the same time lifting up the act of devotion that he sees in this woman. It's a little bit more complicated, right, than just something you can say to push people to give even more money to the works of God. So I want to pause right there. If you're one of the people who's watching this by yourself or watching with a group of people, I want to invite you to pause and think or to discuss amongst yourselves, one, if you've ever been a part of a church, how have you heard this text discussed? And that little bit of nuance and maybe uh, perspective on what's going on in the background of the story, the story, does that influence how you perceive it or how you understand it today? Two, I want to ask, what are the things that you're willing to support sacrificially? What are the things about which you're so passionate, that you care so much, and that you see the impact that it makes on the world, that you're compelled, that you desire to give sacrificially? Meaning, okay, there's going to be things in my life that don't happen, like vacations or pleasurable events or even things that are worthwhile and good, like a vehicle that works a little bit better, because I want to support this change in the world. What is it that motivates you that much? Is it things like faith and the gospel? Is it things like immediate needs around you in the world? What is it that deeply motivates you to the point of sacrificial giving? I want you to discuss that. And when you're done, 
when you're done thinking about it on your dog walk today. Well, let's come back in and let's read a little bit of chapter 13. And I want to point out something really quickly. We're going to stop at verse 4 today. And the reason is because chapter 13, verses 5 through 27, are incredibly dense and complicated and need to be all taken in one lump sum. And that means today's uh, lesson was either going to be way too long or way too short. And my decade as a preacher has taught me that no one ever gets mad when things are too short. So what we're going to have is a pretty brief lesson today where we just do the end of chapter 12 and this very beginning of chapter 13, because in our next session, we've got a big section of scripture that's very complicated with a lot of stuff to dive into and doing it all today might be a little bit too much for one episode. Does that make sense? All right, so we're continuing on. We're still taking place in that area, but we've moved on a little bit. Chapter 13, verse 1 begins this way. As Jesus left the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what awesome stones and buildings. Jesus responded, Do you see these enormous buildings? Not even one stone will be left upon another. All will be demolished. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? What sign will show that all these things are about to come to an end? Okay, so if you've ever had a chance to go to Jerusalem, the actual physical world that surrounds this story is very instructive. So if you get a chance to look at Jerusalem with a bird's eye view, you'll notice that the city is surrounded on roughly three sides by a kind of deep entrenchment with uh, possibly water at the bottom of it, or if it's dry, which it frequently is in that place, at least the walls are kind of steep on each side of that trench that goes around. Not super surprising because most ancient cities were built with things like defenses in mind. It makes sense. On the eastern edge of the city is where the temple and the temple mount takes place. So remember that in the ancient world, the temple of Israel and the temple mount, which is the giant retaining wall and raised earthen area upon which the temple and a great deal of other things rest, was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was one of the most incredible things that you could see that had been built by human hands. It's right up there with the Colossus of Rhodes or the Great Pyramids in Egypt, right? The temple in the Temple Mount is one of the highlights of human architectural achievement in that time and place. Not just the temple, but the mount upon which it resides. On the eastern edge, there's a wall and there's some gates, and then you can walk down that steep embankment and walk back up the other side, just a few hundred yards by foot, really. And on that other side is where the Mount of Olives is. So they're just a few hundred yards away. They're looking across this ravine at the temple and the Temple Mount. And what they see there is the center of their world. It's the equivalent of the holiest place in the world, plus the most expensive an incredible architectural achievement, plus the thing about which you're the most proud, plus the capital of your nation. All of those things collide together in their world at the temple in the Temple Mount, right? It means everything to them. So what do you think they experience when Jesus says, uh, do you see these enormous buildings? Not even one stone will be left upon another. All will be demolished. I mean, how would you react if someone said something like the capital of your nation and the most impressive building and the holiest place in the world to you is going to get torn down, isn't going to exist in the way that you've seen it exist before? What would your reaction be? It would be disbelief. It would be anger. It would be confusion. And one of the most important things you'd want to know is when and how. And then if you had a chance to calm yourself, you might begin to ask yourself the question, and what does that mean? 
So that's what Jesus is going to begin to reveal in the next text. So one of the things that he's going to be talking about, which we're going to study the next time we come together, is not just some of the things that are going to happen in history, meaning there's going to be the destruction of the temple. It's going to happen by the Roman army in just a few short decades, meaning in the lifetime of a lot of the people that are hearing him speak in this time and place. But there's also going to be the the destruction of the temple way of worship. There's going to be the destruction of this previous relationship that existed exclusively between the people of Israel and God that is now being expanded through his life, death, and resurrection through all people and fulfillment to what God had promised to Abraham, so on and so forth. And so one of the things that Jesus is also revealing is the new thing that God is up to. So all of that text next week is what we're going to be discussing. And the first thing that I want you to understand about this is imagine how emotionally complex and difficult it is for the people that are following Jesus. We can make it sound really simple and easy. Oh, this is going to happen, but it's ultimately for the good. That's not that easy. And the thing I want to point out today is following Jesus often isn't that easy. Too often, particularly in the pop culture perspective of Christianity, it can feel like promises of everything's always going to be easy. Everything's always going to be what you expect. It's good day after good day after good day. You die, you go to heaven, right? Too often, the story of Christianity can be presented that way. And one of the things that Jesus is making over, clear over and over and over again is there are costs to this, and there's resistance to this. And there's trials in this, and there's difficulties in this, and sometimes things don't go your way, and sometimes the things that you thought were unassailable in this world ultimately come crumbling. That's a hard message to hear, and it's an easier message to hear when we trust in the person who's giving it to us. So that's what I want to lift up today. I want you to pause and reflect. What are the things that implicitly you reflect on and say, well, that's always going to be there? Right? I mean, yeah, things can change, but that's always going to be the same. That organization, that structure, that institution, that place, those people, that relationship, etc. What are the things that ultimately in your mind you think, well, they're always going to be there, right? Because the truth is, on a long enough time frame, they're not. But one thing will be. And that's God and God's love as shown to us through Christ. So, in your time of reflection today, What are the things that ultimately you're thinking, they're always going to be there. They're always going to be there. I can always rely on that. And let's reflect on the difference between that and the one thing on which you can always rely. Okay, we've got a big session the next time we gather together, jumping into one of the more difficult pieces of Mark to interpret. I can't wait to do that with you. Until then, God bless, and I'll see you soon.